Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode seven of Say Who Say Pod, a podcast about UW football hosted by myself and Danny O'Neill. Uh, Danny, are you familiar with post-game win expectancy? Um, I don't know about post-game. Oh, wait. Okay. That's where you look at the stats yes. and decide if you just based it on, on the stats, who is most likely to if win. If you so showed it- a box score to the computer and said, who won this game? And in, this is the one that has it was a six percent chance that Colorado won this game based on based on the statistics that that showed. Is yes, that correct. According to uh, to Bill Connolly at ESPN, his um, his metric his 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 post game win expectancy looked at the Washington Colorado box score and concluded that based on the numbers and the way the game played out, Colorado had a six percent chance. Of winning it, which seems about right, and, and I think is made more remarkable by the fact. Hold on, though. This, this is the question that doesn't take into account turnovers. Right? It, it does. I believe it does. Really? I think even really? even with the four <laughs> the four turnovers, even with the four to nothing turnover margin, <laughs> Washington still outgained Colorado and moved the ball and stymied them no... defensively to a point where they they had a ninety four percent chance of winning the game. That's really hard for me to believe because when because when I saw it. When I saw the, the the that number, I looked at it and I was like, "Man, that must not take into account turnovers," because Washington had four of them. It was such an imbalanced game, but I felt like if you showed me a four nothing turnover margin, there's not much in terms of yard discrepancy in first downs or time of possession that would make me feel like, "Oh, wow, that's a shock that the team with all of those yards won if they were minus four in turnovers." Yeah, and especially, I mean, one of them was returned for a touchdown and, oh, and one God. of them one of them gifted them a field the the second turnover that led that led to points, the defense did like an outstanding job to make Incredible sure it was job. only a field goal. Incredible job. Like they stood up and you really felt, "Okay, so the offense up until that late up until that late touchdown, the offense had scored 10 points for itself and essentially scored 10 points for Colorado. Yes. The fumble that was returned for the touchdown and the and the turnover that became a field goal. They often, Colorado's offense did not move that ball an inch, and they got three points out of it. Yeah. and they, Between their first scoring drive, their first possession, which ended in a field goal, and then their touchdown drive in the fourth quarter, they did not have a possession that lasted longer than four plays. Yeah. I... Okay, I've got a big picture question. Why is Washington's offense so much better on its opening drive than the rest of the time it has the ball? The ob- it is, it, 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 it's, it's, tr- it's gone through this whole year, right? Like Montana, starting in the game against Montana, they marched, they marched the ball fairly effectively on their first drive, right? Like th- it's been one of the most consistent themes has been that this offense is absolutely terrible except on its opening possessions, except when it has the ball in the first quarter. And then it's not, it's, I'm not going to say good, but like it's, it's average, right? Like it's a, it's an okay offense in just the first quarter. The honest answer is, I don't know. The easy kind of, kind of maybe lazy man's football answer is, well, most teams script about their first 15 plays, right? So but John Donovan's been coaching this team. And there's no way that big brain Donovan was sitting there coming up like, I got something for him. The the best so the best working theory I have is that is that Washington comes out with their plan and and they execute it pretty well and they got something. And then the defense is like, Oh, huh, that's what they're doing. We're gonna change this and this, and then Washington's like, Oh, dude, we can't do it anymore. And they can't adjust. <laughs> 
<laughs> but see, this week I feel like was kind of broke the mold that way because I thought they moved the ball well pretty much the whole game. The whole game? <laughs> you know? like to throw up on themselves. Like, hey, for a change of pace, we're going to move the ball effectively. We're just going to give it away. If I had told you that on third downs against Colorado, Dylan Morris would complete 11 of 14 passes for 187 yards. He 13.4 yards per attempt on 14 pass attempts on third down. And these weren't, you know, so he wasn't dumping it off. It's it's third no. it's third and 3 and the defense doesn't know what to expect. These were like mostly third and longs. The the type chunk plays and he's just money back there in the pocket. It was unbelievable. The type of situations all year where it's like, well, all right, the defense is going to bring six guys and he's going to get sacked or flushed and have to throw it away and there's going to be no chance um so the, the combination of of washington going 14 of 21 on third down i mean that's that is just a, an unbelievable conversion rate and they score 17 points um it, it almost does not compute but you look at that turnover margin four to nothing and how consequential the turnovers were and it makes a little more sense my question is um I, I saw you tweet during the game that you thought you were past the point of yelling at the television over yeah, UW football. I, and if, I if, if ever if ever there was a game where I think people would have been beyond that, it would be this. But then the way it happened, it was like it was like they were like, oh, OK, you, you think you're done caring? You think you're done caring about the way this team loses? Well, w- watch this one. Yeah, that was it was the fumble return. Where I was just like, ah, <laughs> like it, and it was, I, I honestly thought after they blew the 10 point fourth quarter lead, cause I, when they blew the 10 point fourth quarter lead to Arizona state, I wasn't angry. Like I wasn't, it wasn't like the Oregon game. I left the Oregon game mad. Like I, I, and not at Oregon. Like usually I leave it mad at their fans or something. I, and Arizona state, it was kind of like, nah, that man, that that's, that's just who this team is. And I thought I, I thought I was past it. And nope, <laughs> cut it out. <laughs> watching, watching that linebacker run the ball back. I was like, you've just got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Nope, nope, nope. That's we're we're just going to let this happen. <laughs> we're just all going to let this happen. Yeah, nope. It's, it turns out they they still, I, I could still, I wasn't quite dead. I was only mostly dead. I was only mostly dead. And when you're only mostly dead, that still leaves, leaves room for a death rattle once they twist the knife. Does it matter to you that they're not going to a bowl game? Um, I'm bummed for the players. Yeah, like, I genu- I genuinely feel this team's played hard. Like Tyrone Willingham's that 2008 season, I I felt that 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 team that there was there were some issues with that team and how hard it was playing at times for the coach. And I I don't blame the players for that because I think there were a lot of problems. Um, I, I think Tyrone had lost that team and the way he treated some of the players with the suddenly senior stuff, the guys he'd kicked off the team. I think there were a lot of problems. I feel like this team's played hard for the big picture of the, of the program. No, I don't care. I, 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 I really don't. And going and playing on in one of these bowls in a year when you're 500, I, does that, does that mean anything? Not to me. Like I, I'm not going to miss watching them in whatever bowl game they would go and get to play. I, I don't buy the whole value of practice and all of those things. I don't think that that bowl experience is making it more likely that some of their best players will stay there if they were considering transferring. So, no, the honest question, the, the honest answer is I, I don't, I, they don't even have a coach. They're not going to have a coach for that bowl game. Have Bob Gregory go and go through the rigmarole of a bowl? No, it doesn't bother Yeah, me. and I think you'd be looking at, 
and you know, not to not to put this on those guys. It's not like I have any indication that this would have been the case, but just college football in 2021, you're looking at the possibility in that instance of someone like Trent McDuffie, Kyler Gordon. Um, I think Kate Otten is, is hurt anyway, but that caliber of player probably at least considering not playing in a bowl game yeah, when, when you're six and six. So yeah, why would you, it, if you're a player that's considering going into the NFL draft, there's no reason that you really like, I don't know what you would have to gain by playing that game. So for the guys who really look forward, you know, and it's, it's supposed to be a reward, right? You get to go visit maybe, maybe a part of the country that, that you don't play in a lot. You're there a few days. It's kind of a celebration of your season. I heard Cam Cleland recently talking about this on the radio saying that, you know, it's look for people who say there's too many bowl games or I don't want to watch this, or this is a meaningless game. Like you don't get it if you haven't played, like it's about the players, they get gifts. It's, it's this kind of fun reward at the end of a, of a hard season. So for guys in that locker room who, you know, really wanted that and really look forward to that, um, it's unfortunate, but I do think, they're at least in a position now where with nothing left to play for, they can kind of treat the Apple Cup like their bowl game, right? Like this is this is it. This is the last game for these seniors and for some of these uh, underclassmen who are going likely going to the NFL after this year. Um, WSU is is in position if if they win, um, they can root for an Oregon State victory and they can you know they can still win the North Division. So there's a, there's still something on the line for the Cougars. Um, it's, it's at home. <laughs> they got a chance to maybe kind of play spoiler ish the way that this year is gone. Uh, and, and it's, it's one last game. It's a rivalry game. They haven't lost to them in nine years, seven games in that span. Um, so maybe it's, it's just as well that they put all their chips on, on this Friday and, and end it one way or another. There's no reason to think that Washington is going to win the apple cup. The Cougs have played pretty well. The Cougs have been a more consistent team through, just as much and maybe more turmoil given what happened with Nick Rolovich. There's, there's no reason other than the fact that it's the apple cup. And I would just encourage all Washington fans to be really gentle with Cougar fans this week because <laughs> there's a tendency, there's a tendency that Cougs have to really get out over their skis in these situations. And this is going to be the year it happens. And, and I think, I think most most Washington fans, like we've got a, there's a, there's a soft spot in our heart for the Cougs. Like in a way that it doesn't exist for Oregon. Like when Oregon was getting just bodied by Utah on Saturday, I, I couldn't have enjoyed that more. Like that wasn't, I don't care that we stink. I don't care that Washington has lost 15 to the last 17. Watching Oregon get pantsed as everyone's talking about the college football playoff was awesome. The Cougs is different. I, I don't want them to be too let down if they lose to Washington again. And if they win, I, there's, I'm not going to say I'm going to be happy for them because it doesn't feel good to lose, lose an Apple Cup. But if they don't win this year, wh- when exactly are they ever going to win? Like I, if, they, if, they don't, if they don't, if it doesn't happen this year where Washington's already fired its coach, has just lost to a terrible Colorado team, is blowing a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter at home against Arizona State – like if if it doesn't happen this year when 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 exactly is it going to happen again i think it felt that way in 2018 a little bit too you know was well, that the snow game yeah is that when it snowed it, and and look you know washington was also both teams were playing for the north division title so it's not like stakes were off the table or washington had this terrible team 
but you know Wazoo had kind of the dream season with you know Gardner Minshew came in and and was this folk hero and they were favored for once and playing at home and game day went and visited Pullman at last everything everything pointed to them ending the streak and I think when it didn't happen that year there was just kind of a a feeling that set in among among Wazoo fans like man when when are we going to get this thing done you know when are when are we going to get this thing snapped so it this year I think for all of the reasons you you enumerated feels maybe a little bit more that way other than the fact it's in Seattle but um it just it does seem I mean WSU could not possibly have any more momentum on its side and Washington could not possibly have any less so um I I think WSU's still Cougs though right like they're still they're still the Cougs. Like the Cougs, they're, they're they're still the Cougs. There's a there's an essential element of Cougness that exists in them, and that that goes in a, in a very strong positive direction. Like I think I think most people would admit that the location of their campus, sort of the 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 remoteness of it, the fact that every it breeds a camaraderie among Cougars that we kind of don't have at times at at UW. Like the UW fan base is more is more spread out. It, there are people that commute to the school. There are pe- there there are people on campus that don't give a rip about the football program in a way that it's hard to do at Wazoo because there's so little else going on that it really does that community does revolve around the university more. Whereas Seattle's a pretty big urban urban hub. Like there's but but there's also an element of cougness of as excited as they are right now and feeling like this is the year there's got to be just a little bit of gnawing doubt right like in the back of their mind of or maybe it's at the front of their mind and they're just overcompensating for it but when Jim Moore said on Twitter that there's no way that the Coug flews to the Huskies this year I'm like there's at least one way I mean there's at least one and there's probably multiple ways that it could happen but there's at least one way the the Cougs can lose this one it's not unfathomable yeah it doesn't it's (laughs) It's not like a tremendous amount of mental gymnastics required. And, and like, <laughs> you look at Washington's schedule, they're four and seven. They have played many, many close games that they've lost. So, you know, this isn't a team that's just been blasted every week. So uh, I think they definitely have a chance. But I, I think it comes down to is is WSU going to commit to running the ball, um, They which they, they had a lot of success last week against Arizona, a little bit different maybe type of game script, but you know, Max Borgie's very talented. Dion McIntosh has looked great. I think they've got two really good running backs. Um, Jaden Delora is a, uh, I think a very promising young quarterback who can make some plays, but um, this is not a Washington defense. You want to come in and throw it 30 plus times against unless you have to. So um, I think that's, it's going to come down to, are they going to commit to running the ball? Are they going to run the ball the same way that most of Washington's opponents have this, this year, which is, very very well and very consistently for four quarters um we'll see you know this I, it's not an offense that's necessarily built around that but they definitely have the pieces to do it so and i, th- I think jake dickard is a a really smart guy um very capable as a game planner and you know i i just i think that he'll he'll look at this washington tape and say okay it's it's borky time do you think i okay I don't think Washington's run defense is that bad. Like you're, you're in, in in being trained and 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 you're supposed to make the declaration up front, is is what I've been told in broadcasting. Like you're not supposed to ask it as a question. I don't think Washington's run defense is that bad. I, I don't totally dis. Worse. I don't totally disagree with that. Yeah, I, I I think it looks worse because of the way that some of these games have gone. 
where Michigan and Oregon are two specifically, where I would say that Washington's run defense was fine for two and a half quarters. Washington, Washington was doing a like their run defense was fine. The issue was in those games with the field position they had, they didn't get anything from their offense. They they just they they got nothing. Like in that in that Oregon game, they should have had more than twenty points at halftime, especially when you consider that there was a pick six and a safety involved. Like just, just the field, a normal offense, average offense, you've got more than twenty points there. The, the fact that the offense has been so bad in some of those games has left the de- the defense just ends up having to play too many plays. And by the by the second half of the third quarter and then into the fourth quarter, yeah, then 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 they're not capable of making stops anymore. But I. I don't think the run defense if if they had a normal offense I think that this is a this is a Washington team that wins 8 games. If they if they just had an average offense, if they had an average Pac-12 offense instead of the worst Husky offense I've ever seen all caps. Yeah, the the worst part of Washington's run defense is its offense. I mean that yes. it comes down to that. And and also just how much better they are against the pass and the fact that they have like legitimately elite college defensive players on you know on the outside at cornerback Buki Radley Hiles has been really good at nickel I think they're so-so at safety but just the disparity between the success that we can have attacking Washington's run defense and the success that we can have attacking Washington's pass defense is so great that um, it, it does I think make the run defense look a lot more appetizing if, if you're an opposing coach I guess I will make one caveat. The the one problem with the run defense has been when when they've refused to bring a safety up into the box. There is that. Yeah. <laughs> when they're just like, "Yeah, we're going to stay in the too high shell." Like bring like against Arizona State. I was like, "For God's sake, bring a safety down." For God, put put eight guys in the box. Please? Please put eight <laughs> guys in the box. And they, and and they wouldn't do it. But for the, for the most part, so when you say that, I think you're right. I think Washington Washington State is going to have to commit to the run. I'm just if Washington's offense plays like it did against Colorado, like I actually think the Huskies are in really good shape for this game. It, I think it just it depends on are they going to get uh, is the is their offense going to be at all approaching a, an average threshold as opposed to just being the dead weight that it has been most most of this season. I will predict that um, Washington will not win this game if it commits four turnovers. <laughs> yeah, no way. Just brutal. Man, Ugh. yeah, man, new and creative ways to. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give you the yards that you've been complaining about because that would be my whole thing. And I didn't feel like it was they were they were super careless because in some instances I've thought their offense is so conservative this year that that's one of the reasons that they've had a hard time is that they just don't take any chances. I, I didn't feel like they were super reckless on on Saturday, but. They certainly, they certainly committed some just mind-numbing turnovers. Yeah, the the first interception was weird. I would be interested to know what was supposed to happen there. Clearly, Dylan Morris thought at least he was supposed to fake to the tailback, if not give to him. Um, if the if the play was intended to be a give to the back, and the back just missed it, you probably don't want to throw the ball at all under any circumstance there um, unless it's out of bounds. So probably an instance of Dylan Morris trying to do too much. Like the second interception, he's got to make a better throw for sure. But you have guys like Jalen McMillan and Romo Dunze on your team so that you can put the ball up in one-on-one situations and give them a chance to go make the play. 
Um, and I, I think I think you'd like to see a little better effort from the receiver there coming back to the ball. I would agree with you on that, but here's we've seen a number of times you say that you've got those kind of athletes. Have you ever seen Dylan Morris overthrow either of those guys? Nope, except yeah. on the hail mary at the end of the half, right? And that's that would be one of the things that 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 I would say about. And that's not a criticism of Dylan Morris. That's that's a criticism of what they're able to do at that position. And the the fact that I don't think they've had or or played with a mindset or an offense that is capable of maximizing the strengths of those two. You, you need somebody that can huck it deeper. Like that's that's just the 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 plain truth of it is that he hasn't had, and they've gotten into trouble when they've tried to throw deep with Dylan because he tends to underthrow him. He just doesn't, whether it's arm strength or or the trajectory, he hasn't gotten it. It's cost him a UCLA game, right? Like he's got, that's mm-hmm. the right throw. He's making the right read. He's just not capable of executing that throw. And that's been fairly consistent over the course of this season. And that's why I say that this doesn't come back to like, hey, Dylan Morris, like he can't do that. It's like, th- there's a little bit of square peg and round hole with with regard to that. And I'll say too, I know I touched on this last week, so I won't belabor it. I watching the game back, I really I don't think that Dylan Morris's play lined up with um the way that people were just losing their minds about him on, on Twitter this last week. And that's not to suggest like, oh, he's yeah, he hasn't played well this year. There's every reason for them to give other quarterbacks a look. You know, I'm not uh, I'm I'm not throwing myself in front of a train for, for Dylan Morris or anything, but I mean, he, he, he moved the offense um, yes. better than they have most of the season. He threw for 387 yards. They weren't all cheap. There was no garbage time in this game. He converted third and long over and over and over again. Didn't have trail Bynum. Didn't have Kate Otten. Didn't have Sean McGrew. Um, yes. The, the turnovers were very unfortunate, especially the, the fumbled snap. Um, if, if that's on him, which, you know, I, I don't know. Um, there was, there was obviously something weird with the exchange there. The, you got, you, you got, you can't have the turnovers and the interceptions have been a problem all season long. Um, but I, I didn't think he played like absolutely horrible from a four quarter perspective and, and whatever stock you put in PFF, he was their third highest rated offensive player from this game. He had a rating of, um, an offensive rating of 73.3, which is pretty decent. So I like, it, it seemed like this was sort of a breaking point for people for, with, with Dylan Morris that like, you know, Oh my God, anybody, anybody, but him, please next week, never want to see him take another snap. I don't know that his play in this game is what should have gotten people to that point. It's not. And this is, this is a, a common trend. It's in Husky football. I think it's in college football in general. The, the, the quarterback takes, takes the brunt of that. And, people create sort of a decision and and about who is to blame and that he's not a division one quarterback or he's not a Pac twelve quarterback. And and those those kinds of declarations to me are they're it's like debating whether or not Batman can beat up Superman. It's kind of this made up distinction. Dylan Morris is good enough to be a Pac twelve quarterback. And the Washington coaching staff's job is to build an offense that accentuates his skill set and allows him to thrive. They have not done that this year. Like this this plant whatever happened this year and whether it started with an over they, that they they were overconfident about the ability of their offensive line, whether 
they built this offense wrong. It, it, yes. it, it has been it has been built poorly, and it did not maximize his strengths. Casey Paws was a quarterback that did not have much success at UW, and and that would be probably one of the offenses that I would point to as one of the toughest to watch. It, it was he was being asked. To, there are there are things that he did that you had to coach around that with with Casey Paws release and and it, talking to a coach like uh, about it at the time. It was they're they're choosing not to do that. They're asking him to conform to what they want to do. And and when when that happens, when you've got a, a guy that's not capable of executing the offense the way it was constructed for him, who does the blame fall to? It should not fall on the kid. And 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 that's this is probably like at the at the very core of most of my beliefs about how how to be a good college football fan or to root for it. Like if if you're mad at Dylan Morris, like you're completely you're completely missing the boat because he's out there trying his best and I would agree with you he played pretty well like we went through the third down numbers that were there that's why they moved the ball so well and that wasn't third and 3 or staying on schedule that was that was him making plays there are some limitations he has as a player and and we've seen those at several different points this season the fact that those become these backbreaking moments for the for the team in those games is that a criticism of Dylan Morris or is that pointing out that the coaching staff has been unable that they've relied upon someone doing something he that that's not that's not something he is confident and capable of doing cuz I would say it's the latter. I would agree. I it's been interesting to and maybe John Donovan was on board with this but just for whatever reason they couldn't get it done. These last two games with Junior Adams calling the plays um you can tell that a major staple of their game plan is just get the ball in Romo Dunze's hands. Yes. Quick, yes. Th- quick with, throws. With, yes. Uh, Within well, 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. Yep. Don't, don't throw that. That's how you do it. Cause you, you talked about, you want to throw the ball up and make plays and, and let Jalen move the, those. You're right about that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. They've gotten Romo Dunze the ball and gotten him a chance. And what does he look like? He looks like a monster after the catch. Yep. That's I, it, it's almost, you know, if, um, depending on the the coaching hire they make and whatever his future and Jalen McMillan's future might look like, um, it, it it almost is to the point where these last few sort of meaningless games will will show you how he should have been deployed all season and yeah. what what he's capable of if you just target him ten to fifteen times a game. And it would be a shame if um, you know if if either of those guys landed in the portal and you got that glimpse and, and now they're going to go do it somewhere else. Now that's a little presumptuous, obviously, you know, who, who knows what those guys are thinking, but um, I think that's at least a, a thought in, in people's minds. Um, so, so far, do you, know where, do you know where the portal is located at university of Washington? Like I'm assuming it's an actual door somewhere. Some go into someone told me it exits around the construction near the Tacoma dome. <laughs> Let those guys just pop out, sort of really confused. By the way, I, like I don't know if you've seen the the Dr Pepper Fansville yeah, commercial with the I, tra- yeah. I was so glad to see someone finally like go with the literal portal concept for a for a commercial. I thought that was really yeah. funny. I've wondered is it like is it like in Thor in the Thor movies? There's like that bridge right with all the rainbow lights or something like that. Seems like a portal. Like it's such a weird thing of like is he going to enter the portal? Like I imagine like hey, have you guys seen Rome? Rome, don't don't let him go near the portal. We want to have somebody standing guard the whole time to make sure that we talk to him because we don't want him to go into the portal. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
So there's been, by my count, six about six coaches connected to the Washington job via various reports in recent weeks. Let's let's well. I should back up more more than that, but in the last in the last several days, I think there's been like six that have kind of emerged as um, there's been reports that either Washington's interested or that that those coaches are are being vetted. Um, the two, the two that I think will get the most attention, um, and that are the athletics, Bruce Feldman has, has reported these guys as, as kind of maybe catching Washington's interest. And then I think Adam Rittenberg from, um, from ESPN said that, that he'd also heard these two are, are Matt Campbell from Iowa state and Dave, Dave Aranda from Baylor, which I think would be two who would, would make any Washington fans list of you know their top four or top five it, it makes sense that that washington would be checking them out um and then football scoop had a report Legit question here yeah legit question here is washington a better job than baylor um i think the future of baylor's baylor's stuck in a conference that's sinking right that's to me like that they... to me that's what would put washington over the top right is you, you've got a spot in a better conference. But, I mean, Matt Rule went there and then from that job got an NFL gig. Dave Aranda is very, very highly regarded. What, this is his second year at, at Bay, as Baylor's head coach? Yes. Um, but, yeah, so the, 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 the advantage you would have there is that you've got a more consistent footing uh, in a better conference. You know, the Big 12 is interesting because depending on what school you're at, like if you're not at a school that's ever going to be considered like a traditional power in the power five, and maybe this applies more to Matt Campbell at Iowa state. Do you maybe feel better about your future in the big 12 since they're, they're adding some schools that are, are going to bring them up from you know what they would have been if they just lost Oklahoma and Texas. And that was it. It's not going to be the league that it was, but now maybe some of those schools that are, kind of in that bottom tier of, of resources and tradition in the power five that are in the big 12 that have kind of established themselves, have had coaches they feel good about uh, like Iowa state and like Baylor, maybe they're at a point where they feel like, you know what, uh, being in the big 12 and feeling like you've got a legit shot to win it every year wouldn't be the worst thing. That's true. But we're also about to get to the point where winning the big 12 is not going to be seen as you should be in the college football playoff. That's what's going to shape and it. While- yeah, and that's not a guarantee right now. And you can see in the Pac-12 that winning the Pac-12 is certainly not any sort of guarantee. But if it's the the Big 12 is starting to feel Conference USA-ish, like that's that's the only, without Oklahoma and Texas, it's starting to feel like you're you, who who are who are your most powerful members, who who are your best programs, because you've lost kind of the two blue bloods. You've lost the two best programs year after year and best is weird when applied to Texas because they don't win that much, but they are important. So yeah, I I could see that saying, Hey, we're going to be the, we're suddenly going to be the big fish in what was a big pond. I just think you might be looking around and saying like that, that might be a little pond sooner than we think. Yeah. And so like, I think it's similar with Campbell. It's, you know, a school like Washington finds itself, in the rare position, at least with regard to the Big 12, of being able to actually leverage its conference affiliation, which 
I don't, I don't know that you could say that, you know, when going after most coaches in the power five. So that's an interesting little wrinkle. Um, the other four coaches, which came from a football, football scoop report two days ago. Um, and, and the language was that Washington is, is vetting is these vetting four. Them. I love that. Does that mean they're talking to the search firm? Uh, I, that, that would be my interpretation. Um, could always be some agent play here. You never know. Um, but those four are again, uh, two names that would come up on anybody's list of potential Washington candidates Two that are, are not totally out there, but maybe wouldn't be among like the first 10 names that would come to mind. I think the two obvious candidates are, are Kalen DeBoer at Fresno state, who I think is going to get mentioned for a lot of jobs. Um, has done a good job there, you know, obviously has, has done well with Jake Hayner, was a very successful coach, head coach at the NAIA level, um, spent two years as offensive coordinator under Jeff Tedford, which a lot of Husky fans like, very popular. Uh, for, for a guy who spent not even a full season as an analyst on Washington staff, Jeff Tedford sure is popular with Washington Husky fans, Danny. Um, I, love, I love Tedford. For a while yes. I had a pet theory that he was the key to that renaissance of the 2016 season. Many, many, many people believe that. And, and backed off that he did, he didn't have enough there. Like it wasn't, that's not sufficient to, to explain everything that happened, but yeah, I've got a lot of affection for Tedford. So DeBoer checks a lot of boxes, obviously an, an offensive guy, um, which would be, would be very welcome. Um, the, the other, which just in seems to be the, the name that most enrages Husky fans of being connected to this job for some reason is Justin Wilcox, head coach at Cal. Um, we've we've kind of talked about the the pluses and minuses uh, with him, uh, and then the the two that are maybe a little bit little bit outside the box, um, Jeff Halfley at uh, at Boston College, and then Brian Harson at, at Auburn, um, which makes sense. It's it's a very obvious direct Chris Peterson connection. Boise State connection, um, but there's a lot of speculation around his vaccination status, that which he has not disclosed. But I think the presumption is that that's for a reason. Um, and would that would that, that plays that plays different in Washington than it does in Alabama? Uh, just a little bit, yeah. Slightly different. Might um, be more of an issue up here. As one person put it to me recently, after seeing that report, they they said. Does Brian Harson hate Auburn so much he's willing to get vaccinated? <laughs> <laughs> a real test of convictions at that point. Yeah, I don't, I don't. So I that one, yeah, and and throw the vaccinate vaccination thing aside. I, I I don't know that that seems like a real obvious fit. Him coming to Washington, I, you know, he's obviously got ties in the region and and was at Boise State for a long while and had some success there. Um, Halfley's interesting, you know. I, I I don't know, I don't know how realistic that is. And again, you know, what what does it mean vetting versus mutual interest? Um, but he he's done a pretty good job at a, at a program where it's not necessarily easy to get it going. I mean, he's twelve and ten there in in parts of two seasons. They're bull eligible this year, although they're only two and five in conference. Um, the variety of experience at both the college and the NFL levels. He's 42, so he's he's right in that kind of that age range that I thought made Jimmy Lake a really ideal head coach. That he was 43, young enough to kind of have that that energy and and someone you could see really doing well on the recruiting trail, but also old enough to have have gained a lot of experience at a lot of different places. 
Um, I've heard some people talk very highly of him. Uh, I don't know a ton about him, you know, aside from just where he's been and, and his track record and everything. But interesting that that he would be on their radar, considering not not a guy with any real obvious um, West Coast ties, aside from a, a three year stint coaching DBs with the Forty ers Is he a Shiano? Because I, I know that he was with the Bucks and with Rutgers, and and so I I think he's someone, but I don't want to go so far as to say protege because I don't know if he was high enough up on the on the coaching ladder to be someone who was sort of sort of developed on that coaching staff. But looking at him, I was trying to figure out okay, like what what background does he bring? Uh, Washington had talked to Tom O'Brien when Tom O'Brien was the Boston College coach, and that would have been before O'Brien went to North Carolina State. Um, O'Brien withdrew himself from consideration. I, I'm trying, I think it was when they hired Sark. I, I think that's the right timeline, but I'm not positive on that. It might've been earlier. Actually, maybe it might've been Willingham. It might've been when, when they hired Willingham that, that Tom O'Brien had been, had been a consideration for there. That it's different at Catholic schools. It's different to hire a guy and Boston college is a Catholic school and it's East coast. I don't want to say that like, hey, that that would be too tough a transition, but it seems like you would be recruiting a radically different geographic area and a, a different kind of school because West Coast recruiting is different. And, and in Washington, I think there is a benefit to having been on the West Coast and understanding the, the logistics of how that works because to make it work at Washington, especially right now where you're going to be contending with all of the momentum that Oregon has built in recruiting – you do have to recruit from California, Texas, and Florida. Like there, there's yep. some, you have to find a way to get some inroads into at least one and maybe two of those states. When Washington's been at its best, it's had, it's had an ability to go and get guys from, from, from those places. So I thought the same thing with Halfley. I was like, I'm interested. And I kind of poked around because I hadn't thought much about him. I just, I'm not sure. I'm not, it's weird to say culturally. But I do feel like it's kind of this culturally. I don't know if, if having worked for Greg Schiano in a couple places and being at a Catholic school on the East Coast is exactly setting you up for success going to a public university on the West Coast. Yeah, I, I think the recruiting thing is the big, the big worry. With um, and I, I don't even know if it's a worry. Like, I, if if you have a really good coach who's a good recruiter in his region, I don't. I don't think there's there's any reason to think like he couldn't come do it on the West Coast, right. especially, you know, we can talk all day long about Washington's branding issues nationally. But on the West Coast, you walk into a, a high school in California, in Nevada, you know, obviously in the Puget Sound region, wearing that purple polo shirt with a W on it and you're the head coach. You're going to command some respect because everybody knows what Washington is and what they're all about. And now you you're recruiting a, a kid who has grown up watching Washington in the Rose Bowl, watching Washington in the college football playoff, watching them win Pac-12 championships and kind of be one of those, you know, one of those premier programs in the conference, which I think the lack of that was really what was preventing them from kind of taking the next step into being a top 20, top 15 type of recruiting program. So I, I, I think that with West Coast recruits, the program is going to speak for itself on a certain level. That's going to set a floor. That's going to set a baseline. And as we saw with Jimmy Lake, that's not enough, right? I mean, you, you still got to go out and work. You, you got to go out and, and and sell the thing and and you know show show those top prospects, those blue chip prospects, why you should come to Washington and not USC or Oregon or 
UCLA or any, any, any number of these power five powers coming from the Midwest or the South, you know, recruiting California more often now too. Um, but if you can find someone who's got that blend of head coach experience and who fits your program culturally, whatever that might look like, and does have those relationships on the West Coast, that that's that's probably going to be a trump card. I don't think it rules out somebody like a like a Jeff Halfley or you know if if they felt like Billy Napier would w- would be amenable to a pitch. I don't think it you know w- would rule out somebody like that either. So it's it's a concern. It's a question to ask. Um, it for me, it's it would not be a prerequisite that you must have had some sort of West Coast recruiting experience. Is there a chance Matt Campbell would take this job? And because when this started, I initially I kind of grouped him in with Fickle and maybe Napier as well. As guys, there are so many. There are a lot of top tier jobs open. Yeah, not just you, not just USC and LSU, but Virginia Tech's in there. Like there's it, Florida it's already now. happened. Like. Yeah, Florida. Oh, by the way, no interest in Dan Mullen. Like, do not let anybody try to start any. Like, I have no interest in that dude. Like that that dude attracts flies. Like, there is there there he is giving off fumes of being a huge dirtbag. I have no interest in him. Um, but Matt Campbell is someone I would have grouped in there with Fickle and 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 Napier, who I'm like I think they're going to end up getting higher profile jobs. Now I'm not sure what they are. They, I think they're six and five now after they lost to Oklahoma and they played Oklahoma pretty tough on Saturday. It's been, it's been a down year. He might've waited. He, he probably could have gotten a better job last year or the year before than then maybe he could right now. Like USC is not going to hire him coming off of that season. Like not with what they, you don't think so. You don't think they would? No, I don't. I, I think the, no, I don't think they can sell it. I don't think they can sell it to their to, to their alumni. They're going to try to get a splash. Man, if you can't sell Matt Campbell, who who's who who can you sell? Well, maybe I'm over, maybe I'm overrating him. Maybe my my opinion of him is is higher than what the the USC fan base would be. I don't know, but I just feel like among coaches who are quote unquote available, and and you know people only think Matt Campbell is available because of where he's currently coaching. Obviously, I I don't know how many more viable candidates for USC that there are than him and you know who have, who have had some buzz around him as somebody who could take a step up yeah but you're going to try to sell you're going to try to say we're going to hire this guy who is 6 and 5 at Iowa State this year and he's going to be the one to restore USC to its nice I'm I'll be the first one to tell you I don't think USC is as great a job as everybody does I I think there's I think there's one guy that's thrived in that job in the in the past 30 years and 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 that's really it if we're if we're honest about it but i don't i don't think when they have gone with that sort of understated hire it's always been internally i don't i don't think they're going to come out and hire a guy who's been meh this season at iowa state he would he would have had it would have had to have been one of the previous years i think i think i just think that's going to be a tough a tough sell for them but maybe i'm overestimating what USC is going to be able to command. I think they'll get somebody with, I think there's a possibility you have somebody with previous NFL head coaching experience that you could talk into that job. I, 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 I don't see them going with Matt Campbell. It's interesting because I, Matt, so long as Iowa state doesn't just fall off the cliff, you, Matt Campbell could probably always get a better job on paper than Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but then so could Chris Peterson, right? He could mm-hmm. he could have had any job he wanted, pretty yep. much any cycle. 
so the question is, does he fit in that same sort of realm of being hyper, hyper focused on fit and where, where do I think my style will fit best and not necessarily what's the very best, most high profile, highest paying job I can get. And I think everything you hear about him is that he's, he probably falls more in that Chris Peterson category, not to compare him to Chris Peterson directly, but in that way, I think he probably is more of a guy who's going to, who's going to really look at every facet of a program and, okay, is this somewhere that my system can succeed, that I can recruit the kind of players I want, that I'm going to have, you know, the support and, and resources from the administration that I'm looking for. And, you know, maybe a school in Washington's tier is a more ideal fit to him than chasing a, a USC or a Florida or an LSU or, you know, whatever other high profile job might come open. But is it, is it a good enough job for him to leave a situation that obviously he's made clear he feels good about and is not like desperate to get out of? I, I don't know. Um, I think it would, it would be a situation where Washington would have to sell him, right? Washington would have to recruit him. I don't think he is pounding down the door to come coach at Washington. I don't think he's the type of coach who's who's just going to, you know, have his agent on the phone, do everything you can to get me the Washington job, you know. So I think it would it would have to be a it would have to be a recruiting pitch on the school's part and yeah, I don't know. I I think that again, there's there's going to be probably, you know, quote unquote better jobs for him out there. Uh, maybe maybe USC uh, and a school of USC's caliber has cooled on him because of their record this year. I, I would cut him some, you know, I just don't think it's realistic to have Iowa State at like an eight, nine, ten win level every season. Like I think there's going to be dips. Um, of course, and I think absolutely. You're, you're more. He's a, great, he's a great coach. I would I would sign up for him without hesitating. And I, you asked, is Washington a good enough job for him to to leave that? My honest answer would be probably not. But maybe with the change in conference, may, maybe. Maybe the change in circumstance, maybe he sees an opportunity here that over the long term, if he was able to do that in Ames, what could he do in Seattle? And that it's not, Washington is not the same kind of pressure cooker that LSU is, where you had a coach who had won a national championship two years ago. And obviously there are different circumstances that played into that. And and Ed Orgeron kind of some, not just the performance of his team on the field, but that that is a... There is there is not nearly as much room for forgiveness or backsliding at at LSU or at Florida, no. As as there would be. I mean, Jimmy Lake survives this year if he doesn't make an ass out of himself. Yeah, and I I he, think Jen Cohen is going to be telling in this search telling anyone who will listen that like, look, Washington is not a school that's going to fire you in your second year just for not having a good enough record. I know it might look yeah. that way from the outside, like. Hey, I did not fire Jimmy Lake because he was seven and six in parts of two seasons. I like, I just, I think based on what she said publicly already about that, I can tell that that like, she's, she's probably going to make that a priority to, to like reinforce, you know, fight against that perception. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I think that if, if she can get that message across, that's probably, like you said, another selling point that this isn't, this isn't LSU, this isn't USC where, you know, the boosters are just going to be all over you if, if you, you know, start one and two or something like that. Um, as long as you're, as long as you're doing everything else, you know, right on the field and off the field. So, um, maybe, maybe that does make them a little bit more attractive. What, what do you think of Kalen DeBoer at Fresno State? I, I'm intrigued by the amount of success he had at the NAIA level. 
Like I, I find it when you have somebody who has built up that that legacy of success and seen it translate as he's moved up one level, I think it becomes easier to see how that could translate moving up another level. There are some differences, um, and Fresno State is not a place where you've seen guys be able to take that leap. Pat Hill was there for a number of years and was pretty successful uh, coach at Fresno State and could never vault um, out of out of out of that level of competition. He he doesn't have as much experience as a head coach. He's been there two years, right? And yeah, so I was kind of leaning toward Norvell from from Nevada Reno because. He's got. He's had four years there, and that's more of an opportunity to see the. Line. But I'm. I'm. I'm interested. I'm interested in Kalen. Like I, I. I very much am intrigued, and the fact that he started that system at the NAIA level is really fascinating to me. The one thing, and not a, not to suggest this is a detriment uh, at all, but he he took over an NAIA program that was very much a a power, um, and for a coach who had been very, very successful and had won at least one national championship, I think there. Um, but you know, he had a 49 and one conference record in five seasons. That doesn't happen by accident. Um, and, and then, you know, to come to Fresno state where it's, it's been a, I think we could say a top, like a top seven type of G five program. Fair to say over the last mm-hmm. 20, 30 years or so, um, obviously have had some some very good quarterbacks and have done some really good things offensively over the years. Um, done a great job with Jake Hayner. Obviously knows offense. Spent a year at, at Indiana where they averaged um, 31, 32 points a game and, and 400-plus yards. So, you know, uh, oversaw a, a relatively healthy offense as, as, uh, at, his, at his last coordinator job at the Power 5 level. Players seem to like him. Um, seems to kind of have that that even keel demeanor that you're looking for. Obviously, now has has had some experience on the West Coast, two different stints at, at Fresno State, so you know knows knows California, knows the lay of the land. Would would be recruiting a, a much different caliber of athlete um, at Washington. So you know that's that's kind of a kind of a TBD oh, in terms of checking that box, you know, is, is he going to get them back recruiting at the level where they can compete for Pac-12 championships? Because, you know, he just, he hasn't had the opportunity to do that. So who knows? But um, I, I feel like he's somebody who, who they should feel like they could get. Um, and I don't want to say that he's the floor for this hire because I think they could do a lot worse. Um, but I, I would just, I think that the head coach at Fresno state um, coming off of, a good year, and I think they have another year with Hayner, right? Next season, I get believe he has on the eligibility because of because I, of I know the, I have to go back and, and do the math again. I the think kid, he's got one year Utah left. Utah still eligible, so I assume people can play for eight years now if they want. Britton Covey, I think he's still got another year of eligibility. Next year would be Hayner's sixth, so that would be he would still have eligibility. So I mean, it's I. He he probably feels like if he comes back, you know, stays at Fresno another year, he's got his quarterback coming back and they can do some things. Um, so maybe not hell bent on on getting one of these open head coaching jobs, but uh, you know, I think someone Washington should always feel like if they want to hire Fresno State's coach, they can, right? Um, so I, you know, I I think I think he'd be a, a pretty good fit, and I think would be relatively well received by the fan base. Like I said, the, the offensive stuff checks all the boxes. The Jeff Tedford Association. I think will be will will would play very well in Seattle. 
Um, you know, obviously he's somebody I would imagine Jeff Tedford speaks highly of. Um, what do you think about, what do you think about the recruiting thing? Well, that's, if there's a concern about DeBoer, the, the assets you just listed very well, everywhere he's gone, you've seen offensive improvement and he has steadily progressed up the pecking order of coaching from the NAIA level at Sioux Falls to then I believe he was at uh, a directional Illinois school and then a directional Michigan school before arriving at Fresno State the first time. So you've you've seen that. The question that I have is he hasn't had any of those jobs for a significant length of time. I think Sioux Falls is his longest tenure, and he he was there for five seasons, I think. And then after that, the longest has been three seasons. So he's he's opt around. And that means that you don't have much of an opportunity to evaluate sort of the program building element of it, right? Yeah. You're you're take you're you're taking a leap of faith in some regards to that. But you're taking a leap of faith with a guy that you've seen consistently get the most out of players. That year he had at Indiana is one of the most telling because of how good Indiana was that year and, and how well they, they had a quarterback that could ball the, 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 the caliber of, 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 of teams that they were, I mean, they were, they were, they mattered in a way that they don't usually in, in the big, in the big 10. So that's, that's what you sell yourself on. And then you hope that the recruiting process works out. Okay. The other thing and you, so, the other thing, and you mentioned this a little bit, it would be his first head coaching job where he didn't already have intimate familiarity with the program because he was offensive coordinator at Sioux Falls for five years and was promoted internally to head coach. And he was obviously didn't was not an internal promotion at Fresno State, but but was only gone for a year. So he came back to a program where you know he he very much knew the culture, knew most of the roster, the majority of the roster probably, um, and you know, obviously had had recruited to that school before. So that, that'd be just kind of an interesting little, little quirk of his resume. Between the two, if you, if you divided up recruiting and coaching, and I'm not sure if it's a 50, 50 pie when you came down to the importance of, of, of strategy versus just talent procurement recruiting, which is more important for a college coach. But just for, for argument's sake, they're 50, 50, which, which would you prefer? The best college coaches are better at which one of those? Strategy or recruiting? For a head coach, I think it's yep. rec- it's recruiting. Mm-hmm. Because you get to hire 10 people to coach the football, you know? Like I you you get you can hire a brilliant coordinator on both sides of the ball and trust them entirely to to put together a game plan every week to to assemble a scheme to look at the roster, evaluate your strengths and weaknesses and say, this is what we're going to be about. This is who we're going to get the ball to. You know, this is how we're going to attack things defensively. Um, you, you need your head coach to be able to close on blue chip prospects. You mean, you, you just do, you know, you look at how involved Mario Cristobal is at Oregon and, you know, do, do we know yet how, how, how great of a coach he, he is, you know, there's been some games that they've kind of punted here or there where they, they, you know, teams they probably should have beat and, um, yeah, but, but he recruits like a madman and he gets the talent in there and, you know, to his credit, like he's, he's done a great job hiring coordinators, you know, like it, whenever Oregon has a coordinator leave or they have an opening, you look at who's available and you're like, Oh, I wonder if they'll go after him. And then they hire that guy 
you know, like it's they. I, so I just, I think if you have a head coach who, um, I would even say like you talk about 50, 50 between recruiting and then strategy and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's more 50, 50 between recruiting and pro I would call it program management, hiring the right people, empowering your assistants to make playing time decisions and schematic decisions. And obviously he has an offensive background. This is, you know, if they were to hire him or, you know, whatever school hires him is getting Kalen DeBoer's offense, no matter what, you know, what coordinator he hires. But um, I, I think it's, it's more about, do you know how to manage all of the pieces and empower them to be at their best to put the players in the right position? And then, um, and then recruiting is, is, yeah, I mean, just, I, I think coming off of the recruiting results they've had under Jimmy Lake and like you talk about Dan Mullen, Florida fired him because he didn't recruit. You know, Florida fired him with a thirty-four and fifteen record because he he didn't seem to to, to want to put in the effort that it was going to take to keep them recruiting at the level they need to to compete in the SEC. Washington needs, you know, similarly needs to make sure they hire a coach who really, really wants to do that, who's all about that, who prioritizes recruiting, who knows that if he doesn't, they're never going to catch up to or compete with Oregon uh, in that arena. So I would, I would always say that, you know, especially for a head coach, someone who doesn't necessarily need to be the guy who's instilling all of your schemes, who's coaching technique, who's spending the most time with each position group. Um, I, I, I would say recruiting would be the, the more important half of that. Does that mean that Matt Campbell's the top choice if you can get him and it's not particularly close? Cause you look at the other guys on the list DeBoer is someone who it's the, the most of his background speaks to his strategic expertise, right? Like he's the guy that you bring in if you want your offense to start functioning. Everywhere that he's gone, their offense performance is picked up. That's 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 about coaching, right? That's about using the parts that are on hand. It's not so much about about closing. Justin Wilcox, I, I think everybody knows and it has seen. It's a challenge to build a program at Cal. He's got really solid defenses. He knows what he's doing on that side of the ball. He, <laughs> whatever it is, he's not been able to put together any more of an efficient offense. Like I, I feel like the, the, you're signing up for the, the possibility of more of the same if you, if you bring him up here. And Dave Aranda, for all of Aranda's experience, it's primarily been as, and maybe he's he's lights out on the recruiting trail, but. I mean, he's primarily been an assistant over the course. I think he was the associate or assistant head coach at LSU prior to that. Is is that you're you're still answering some questions with Aranda about whether or not he's the right guy for that head job? Like the more we've talked about this, the more that I think that you try to throw everything you have at Matt Campbell and hope that you have a situation that uniquely appeals to him because you're not the best job that's open, but but maybe you're the best job for him. Yeah, I would I would go I mean if you if I were assembling like a power ranking the day that Jimmy Lake was fired here's you know here's who I'd go after and why I would have had Matt Campbell number 1 and, and still probably feeling like it was sort of unrealistic. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's realistic either, man. I, I kind of feel the same way like more as we're sitting here talking I'm getting excited about it and like maybe he will and I was like dude there are so many there are better jobs open than Washington. And yep, a bunch of if them. He would and if if he really wanted to leave, he's had better opportunities than Washington to leave in the past. So I I don't know that I might be I might be selling myself. I, I might be falling into the trap of the deluded Husky fan who thinks that because Chris Peterson decided to come here after he had multiple opportunities to leave elsewhere, that this is this is more of a destination for a destination that people just like things a little different. 
They want their football dreams covered in, in, in fleece, dressed up beneath the space needle. We can be some sort of Shangri-La. <laughs> covered in plaid. Yeah, Bearded. bunch of plaid with a light show. Help us build the light show between the third I, and fourth quarter. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you brought up the light show because I I have to confront you with a counterpoint that someone at, at the University of Washington, uh, a, a loyal listener of our podcast, I might add, said that they they thought the light show actually the idea of fans turning on their their cell phone cameras in between the third and fourth quarter did begin organically at Husky Stadium a few seasons back and that Husky Stadium was the first college stadium to really do that it became something that the marketing uh. department started to to actually you know it was part of the game day experience and the school kind of took on the responsibility of of making it a thing but that it did begin organically and that it did begin at the University of Washington what say you well that sounds like the 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 ridiculous hogwash that I always hear about how the wave originated at University of Washington <laughs> and all these people come out with this big explanation for it. Here's the thing. Okay, say that's true. Say that's true that the light show did begin at the University of Washington. Do you think that you as the University of Washington football marketing arm are then reclaiming some sort of heritage? Like, do, do is this is this really the hill we want to die on? I want to tell you the observable result of what I saw in the Oregon game and then the Arizona State game, which was forced fun amidst misery. And, and that's that's on you guys. Like, you could have at any point decided, yeah, you know what? Ixnay on the, I, the light show, A, and, and you did. You went through with it. So this idea of like, oh, it was really fun in 2018 or 2016, and it started, quote, unquote, organically. The minute you got on the, on, on the Twitters, and started deciding, like, which song should it be? And which song should ours be? And, oh, we're going to rip off the song from Michigan where we played earlier this year where it looked awesome. Okay, once that happened, maybe your intentions were good. But intentions don't mean anything. It's terrible. It's observably awful. Stop it. This, this might have been just a harmless attempt to try something. It ceased becoming harmless once Washington's coach started with the academically prowess talk, progressed to it being a downpour, then the absolute albatross of an offense on a really rainy night against the rival who has bit, beaten you 15 of 17 times. At that point, RIP, just pretend it never happened and never mention it again. And the more people attempt to defend this or explain it, the stupider it seems. This is, this is awful. It's horrid. Are they going to do it in the Apple Cup? They better not. It's dumb. It's embarrassing. Stop it. On a, a related topic, because you brought you brought it up there at the start. Um, imagine that you committed a crime, and the oh, that's not hypothetical. The police come to arrest you. <laughs> yeah, and someone else jumps jumps out from behind a bush and says, "No, I committed this crime. Arrest me. I want the credit for this. I did it." This guy's gonna. Guy. This guy's gonna totally let you off. He's he he wants to be arrested for this, and you shove him two hand to the pavement and say he's lying. I committed this crime. It was me and me alone. I can tell you the day. I can tell you the year. I can show you witnesses. It was me. And so the police arrest you, and and you do the time instead, and you're proud of it. That's the University of Washington's relationship to the wave. 
<laughs> they they have had a chance from this crazy Ken guy. Was that, is that his name with a K? Crazy with a K, who who claims he invented it in Oakland, however long ago. And UW has had this guy. This guy's been willing to take the fall for this abomination that has been visited upon large sporting events for multiple decades now. And UW has just refused to let him take the fall for it. And has just yeah. insisted that they be credited with this this just blight on sports gatherings that exists now. There was I'm trying to think of which year it was. I think it was I think it's two thousand eighteen. It might be two thousand and eh, no, it's two thousand eighteen. The wave started in a Mariners game. And it, it, mm. it crops up every once in a while when it I don't like the wave in general, but I really don't like the wave at baseball. I real I hate it. So I started standing up and screaming for them to stop the wave and then decided that I was going to try to single-handedly stop it by standing my ground against it, like bracing for impact as the wave came through. And John Stanton, the <laughs> Mariners owner, was sitting uh, within earshot because he looked around <laughs> and saw me screaming about like trying to judge Smales, heave off! Heave off! <laughs> now that's stop the wave, stop it. That's as much individual impact as one person standing in defiance against the wave could possibly have with a yeah a partner and he asked me sitting about right it later, there. And I was like, dude, the wave sucks. Like, it, and it really sucks at a baseball game. Like, I I can I can understand it at a football game. I hate the wave. I I hate it at baseball games. I hate the people that think it's a fun thing to start. Like it's just awful. So yeah, it makes Washington me think a fight is. It makes me think a fight is breaking out, or it's like, oh yeah, shouts. <laughs> yeah, I want to see the fight. Shouts just go up, and because nothing's happening, and you're like, whoa, what's what's? Oh god, it's the wave again. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. So somebody really said like it was an organic. When someone tries to tell you something's organic, like don't you just feel like you're just trying too hard? You're just trying too hard. Like, if it really was organic, it would have continued and blossomed, and you wouldn't have to send out press releases, and you wouldn't have to have votes about what song. And you know what? People would have actually been able to identify the song between the third and fourth quarter at the Arizona State game. Nope. Nope. Nobody could. Why? Because it's a terrible idea. that You're trying to force fun. Stop forcing fun. 40 years from now, nobody's going to believe you. <laughs> it's going to be one of college football's great traditions. No, I can guarantee that it, that, that it won't. And if they try it at the Apple Cup, like, they, I just really hope that they don't. Like if they're try, if they if they if they try the light show at the Apple Cup, it will show everyone how much the the university's football marketing department hates their fans. Like that they just want to sing. It, it's becoming humiliation porn. Is what is it? What it is? Like that's what it's it's it, it is it is absolutely trying to embarrass the people that are out there. Maybe it's a good thing you won't be there. <laughs> it's true. I'll be in Yosemite. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had I've had my limit. I have had my fill of Husky football this year, live and in and in person. Do Do you have um, a very last final score prediction for the twenty twenty one season? Yeah, man. Huskies twenty four, Cougs seventeen. Picking against against all all verifiable evidence. That the no, 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 no. I have I have great data points here. The overconfidence of Jim Moore. <laughs> is that, yeah, is that that's that's data point one, Jim, two, and Jim, three. Jim Moore has declared he's betting this with both hands. 
It's the smoke and kiss of death. It is. I've seen it many, many times. Nothing speaks to the likelihood of a Husky victory quite like Jim Moore's overconfidence. That's a good point. I So I'm picking Washington solely because I decided sometime around like 2017 that I could not pick Washington State to win another Apple Cup until they did. Um, I, I just think, you know, somewhere around... Yeah, I mean, when Washington beat them in 2015 and then 2016 again, and then when Wazoo was playing for the North, but Washington wasn't, Washington still beat them in 2017. That was when I was like, Yes, sir. Okay, you can't, it, you just, you cannot bet on WSU in this game until they go out and prove it. This could very well be that season. Um, but I, I committed to that as, as a, a, a tenet of my college football gambling and, and picking approach. So I'll stick to it in, until, until WSU does. Uh, snap that streak. So I'll I'll, I'll call it Washington um, nineteen to seventeen. So we both think the Cougs will score seventeen. I've, I'm giving Washington a little bit more credit. Happy Apple Cup, Christian. Yeah, enjoy it. Uh, it sounds like you got it. You got a fun little gathering going there. In I do. We're headed out. We're headed to Yosemite. My dad comes from a prodigious Irish, Irish Catholic family from the L.A. area, and I grew up going to Yosemite for Thanksgiving. Um, we would drive down from Oregon to go there and I, it's something that has continued. So I think our gathering is a little smaller this year. Usually it's upwards of 80 people. I have 37 first cousins on my, on my father's side of the family. Um, this year, I think it's going to be 40, 45. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it. We fly out tomorrow. That's if you get I'll to, go to Fresno, I, I'm going, I'm going through Fresno. I'll check and see what DeBoer's doing. Yeah. Stop in and just kind of take the temperature there. You, what up, Kalen? You could you guys have enough for two full games of eleven on eleven two hand touch if you're if you're so moved. <laughs> We're, it, honestly, it's more of a soccer family than it is a football family. Oh, even better. Down to the, the yeah yeah we'll play a little we'll, we'll we'll kick the ball around. All right, folks, enjoy the Apple Cup. We'll see you next week.